0: Here, man. A lot of us have been here many times, right? And some of us are here for the first time. Right up, you guys are with us. I, uh, I mean, who, who's been here four or more times? Who's been here seven or more times? Wow! Anybody ten or more? Is it a couple of us? A couple of us? Cody. I think this is my 18th retreat that I've been to. Out of Koi, Tennessee. I love this place. I mean, it's so amazing. We're so grateful for you guys that are here for the very first time. And um, but tonight we're going to be looking at First Samuel. You want to flip over there? Actually, we'll start in Second Samuel, chapter eleven. But we're excited to be here in Koi, Tennessee. Have you noticed? There's no internet here. There's No internet. There's, it's a perfect time to disconnect the perfect time to disconnect from the world, to disconnect from all the social media and everything else. But we're going to be able to spend some time here together in the Bible. And this weekend, man, we're talking about the King of Hearts, like, like Cody mentioned. We're going to be focusing on the life of David. And, and he's a powerful, amazing man of God. And, and he is, you know, in the book of Acts and in the book of uh, 1 Samuel, it does mention how David was a man after God's own hearts. And so we're going to look at different pieces of that through the weekend. of what, what was it about David's heart? What was it about David's heart that that made it so amazing? That his heart was like God's, so that we can all we can all join together. You know, if you don't know me, my name is Jordan Massey. My wife and I we help serve in the campus ministry at North River. We have an amazing son, Camden, that's turned one on Monday. He's walking. He's incredible. Uh, you know, if you say if you see him today, just don't. Don't kiss him, but you can high-five him, alright? He, he knows how to do it. He doesn't know how to do a low five yet, but a high five he's got. Alright? So he's growing. But um, so with this idea of a man after my own heart, it, it draws the question: well, well, what is it about David's hearts? Well, what is it with all the great things he did? Well, what did he do? And tonight we're gonna I'm gonna reference a lot of scriptures. You're gonna write them down. And, and I'll tell you which scriptures to flip to. Is that cool with you guys? And so there's a passage in Psalm 51, you can just write it down, Psalm 51, 16-17, and we see a little bit of an insight to what it was about David's heart. And he says, you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. It's David praying to God. He says, you do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit. Because a broken and contrite heart, you, God, will not despise. And so we're going to talk about all the great things God, you know, that David, did, like, I mean, David and Goliath, all, we're going to look at the Psalms, we're going to look at how he was a shepherd, how he was a warrior, how he was a king, all this kind of stuff for us to be inspired by through the whole weekend. But tonight what we're going to do is we're going to start here. We're going to start with such a special piece of what made David's heart so amazing was that he had a broken and contrite heart before God. And, and my prayer is for tonight, as I was praying for this, the retreat's so inspiring, and we get so uplifted to do amazing things for God, and we should, but to start out, we want our hearts to be soft. To start out, we want our hearts to be humble, because you can hear the greatest lesson ever told this weekend, but if your heart isn't humble... If it isn't broken, if it's not contrite, if it's not willing to say, God, I'm going to do whatever it takes to follow you, then it's going to fall on deaf ears. So we're going to work to soften our hearts tonight so that as we lift up God and as we talk about all the great things God does through the weekend, then we can have the right hearts with it. Amen? Amen. Amen. So let's pray and we'll dive in. Father God, you're an incredible God. And God, we love that you put examples for us in the scriptures. And I'm grateful we can look at David together to, tonight and through the weekend. But God, tonight, I pray we have soft hearts. I pray we're willing to examine ourselves. I pray we leave our pride at the door, that we leave the distractions back at home. And we don't, we don't try to put across an image this weekend. We don't play the Christian game, but we're genuine with ourselves. And God, I pray that we won't fall into shame, but we'll have a godly guilt to remember the cross. And we'll be able to change starting with our hearts tonight. And God, I do pray that we walk away from this weekend different people. That we walk away from this weekend with the conviction built that we'll talk about for a lifetime. We love you, Almighty God. Be with us tonight in this room. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 And so I, I, uh, I said Second Samuel 11. We're going to get to there later. Let's first go to Luke 18. Luke 18. The title of today's today's lesson is Heartbreaker. Heartbreaker. And and so we're going to dive into this tonight. And the idea, we're going to look at a moment that broke David's heart. And we're going to see how he responded. Then we're going to try to have that broken and contrite heart ourselves. My My first point is stop playing the Christian game. Stop playing the Christian game. We know the, the, the song "Quit Playing Games with My." Okay, I, I'm not that old. Y'all know, y'all know that song, man. <laughs> hey, hey, you got to know, you got. It. So we know that, but hey, there's a Christian game that we all have been a part of. For most of us, we grew up in Christian households. We've been playing it for as long as we can remember, and it looks a little something like this. You know, the Christian game that we so easily buy into. The goal of this game. Is to seem like a Christian to other people. Yeah, right. It's to put it's to put a good enough image forward to our friends and family that can, that it makes us feel good about ourselves. Yeah, yeah. And we're all tempted with it. Right. And even when we get around each other, a lot of times we play it with each other. Well, who's the most spiritual in the room? And who's done what? And we can get into this comparing game. Right. You know, different groups have different standards of the rules to seem Christian. So we find ourselves. Shaping our convictions based off the people around us. Playing the game. But the biggest rule of this game is to never show any weakness. To never admit that you're wrong. To always seem like the good Christian that you're supposed to be. And tonight, tonight, we're stopping that game. We're, we're stopping that game right now. And through the weekend, you will go back to the same person if you play that game this weekend. And instead of playing the Christian game, we're going to be genuine Christians this weekend. And we're going to not put across an image and not try to just compare, but we're going to fight to figure out what's really going on so we can be real with our almighty God. Amen? So we're going to stop playing this Christian game. And so this, um, this passage in Luke 18, we're going to look at actually first before we go to, before we go to David to, to help our hearts out. So Luke 18, verse 9. You guys with me? it says to some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else Jesus told this parable so hang on a second who's he talking to he says to those who are confident in their own righteousness it's very interesting it, it, it's people that are righteous which we want to be righteous amen? but they're self righteous they, they, they're just as righteous in themselves as they are in God And there's the people that strive to be Christian, well, in this time, they're more Judaism, but they strive to be religious. They strive to be right with God. but, But then they want to prove it to other people also. If Jesus was going to talk to anyone in Tennessee about this tonight, I think it would be this group. It's the group that says they want to be Christians, that they want to strive for God. It's the group that says, hey, I'll take a whole weekend to go to retreat, to draw close to God. And he says, to you who want to be righteous, i got something to say to you. Because you want to be righteous, but you can't be confident in it. And that's what he's going to get into here. And so, in verse, uh, you know, back in verse 10, he says, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like these other people, the robbers, the evildoers, the adulterers, or even like this tax collector. You know, I fast twice a week, and I get a tenth of all I got. But the tax collector, you see, he stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So we have these two very different people that both came to pray. And maybe, maybe it's kind of hard for us to connect with these guys because, you know, I don't know how many of us fast twice a week. So I wanted to reword it for us to modern times. Can I do that for us? Yeah. This isn't Luke 18. This is like Second Opinions 18, but here we go. Hey, come on,
1: Jordan, you got it. It says two
0: men went to pray, to church to pray. One was raised in a Christian home, and the other was new to Christianity. You know, the one raised in a Christian home prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I don't have sex with my girlfriend or boyfriend. I don't get drunk or smoke. And I'm at church every Sunday. In fact, I even read my Bible during the week. But the one new to Christianity, he didn't quite know how to pray. He clenched his fist and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I know I'm not right with you. But help me change my ways so that I can follow you. we got two people again. You know, on one side is, is the righteous man. He's pure. He's going to church. He's, he's striving to read his Bible. He's praying. He's going to church all the time. And then on, on the other side, we have this guy that's, that's impure. He doesn't read his Bible. He, he knows he's a sinner. He, he might be smoking. He might be drinking. But he really wants to change. He knows he's wrong. While the other guy thinks he's arrived... And, and isn't looking to grow? Who do you think walked out right? I don't know some of you know this passage, but if you had heard this for the first time, and maybe some of us are, who do you? In our daily American Christianity, who do we say is right with God? I think that's really important for us to evaluate. And if we continue in verse fifteen or in verse fourteen, we see the answer. It says, "I tell you that this man, the tax collector." Rather than the other, the Pharisee, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. But those who humble themselves, they will be exalted. What an incredible teaching from Jesus. And he radically changes what we do. He says, you know what? It's actually the guy that is sinning, that is humble. He's the one that walks out right. Right? You know why? Because for God, it is better to be a humble sinner than to be a prideful Christian.
1: Wow.
0: It's better to be a humble sinner than a prideful Christian. You know why? Because all of us are sinners. So it's really better to be a humble sinner than a prideful sinner. Because all of us are sinners. And he said it's better for you to not have it all going on straight, for you to know you're wrong and be trying to change, to be a humble, a soft heart before God, admitting where you're at. Because a, a truly humble heart doesn't just admit where they're at. A truly humble heart strives to follow God's way. And and, and they strive to change also. He says it's better for you to be humble and to know you're a sinner than for you to be prideful and to think you've all got it going on. Which one more describes you tonight? It's really important for us to evaluate. But Jesus does say, he says, you know, that those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Have you ever been humbled before?
1: <laughs>
0: so one time, let me tell you a story of how I got humbled. So one time, I think I was in ninth or tenth grade. And um, I, was playing, I was playing football with my cousins down in Florida. And all my cousins, well, my cousin I was with me, he, uh, he was in college. So he just called his college friends out. And, um, and so I w- he was the quarterback. And my cousin's a big dude. He's like 6'3". And then, and then I was like the wide out. And then our whole scheme, because I was fast. I was small and fast. I was like, just, just bomb it and I'll, and I'll go get it. And so just play after play after play, just touchdown, touchdown, touchdown. I mean, and then when it was like 55-0, we were feeling pretty good about ourselves, right? And then my cousin's best friend, his name is Dan. Dan was one of the starting linemen for FSU. And so he's like 6'5", like right under 300, like a large man. And so, Dan was on my cousin because my cousin was also big. But Dan goes, you know what, you know, the fast guy and his team, you get out of here, I'm guarding Jordan. And I was like, who this is big old Dan thinks he's going to keep over me, boy? He doesn't even know. Like, I was just, this guy must be slow. And so, and so he winds up, you know, he winds up like five yards off me. And so, you know, Josh, my cousin, he goes, okay, hi. So, I, I, I run up to Dan, I, my whole idea is I'm going to do the juke, get him slide, break his ankles, and I'm gone, right? That was my, that was my plan, right? So the first part of that went good. I ran up to him, did my juke, and then, and then Dan goes, boom! Oh. I literally fly 20 feet through the air, land <laughs> on my back. And then, I mean, the play stopped. And everyone just went, oh! And I just sat there just, oh no. I just, Josh, can we go home? I was just so humbled. I was so humble. But let me tell you something. It's one thing to be humbled athletically by a D1 athlete. It's another thing to be humbled by the almighty God. You do not, you do not want to be humbled by God. You, you, trust me. You don't want to be humbled by God this weekend. You know how you will be humbled by God this weekend though? He says if you exalt yourself. If you act like you're something that you're not this weekend. And if you act like you're someplace that you're, and you try to put up and play the Christian game. He will humble you, and maybe he won't humble you this weekend. Maybe he won't humble you the next few months, the next few years. But you better believe God's promises wow. that it will come. And He gives you a chance. He gives us a chance to humble ourselves. Because He doesn't want to humble ourselves. Humble us. He gives us a chance to fight for humility ourselves. But He does promise you will end up humble one way or the other. Right. But then He says to those who humble themselves, He'll exalt. And, and to those who get, you know come, I am a sinner. I, I know where I'm at. I know I'm not right with you. He says he'll lift up. You see, it's the crazy thing is that we can lift ourselves up so much physically, just as men and women. But how much higher can the God of the universe lift us up? And how much higher can the God of the universe raise us to such incredible gifts and incredible miracles and incredible amazing things happening in our lives? But you got to do it His way. And you got to humble. We got to humble ourselves. It, it's crazy. You see. The reason it's better to be a prideful, I mean a humble sinner than a prideful Christian is because it doesn't matter where you're at, when you're humble, God can get you to where you need to be. But even if, even if you've gotten to a certain level of righteousness, a certain level of Christianity, but you're prideful, you're stuck. And it's like you're stuck in mud and you can't escape. And your pride keeps you there. So let's humble ourselves this weekend. Amen? So that that now this takes us into Second Samuel chapter eleven, and because we're because we're fighting for this, my, my my ploy to you guys is not do not defend your past, protect your future. So instead of trying to defend all the things you've done and be confident in your own righteousness in the past, admit your mistakes, let it all out, so that God can propel you and exalt you into the future. My second point. My second point is look in the mirror. Look in the mirror. This is also a song. You guys know it? MJ? I'm starting with the
1: the mirror.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Look in the mirror. You know, the mirror, um my son Cam loves mirrors. He loves it. I mean the first time he saw a mirror, he was like, who's that? And then, and then, when he could finally sit up on his own, we would put him in front of a mirror and go. This will amuse him for a while because he can't escape. And, and so we would walk away. The first time, I'll never forget. It. Put him in front of a mirror. We walk away. When we come back, he's literally he's literally making out with himself in the mirror. Just, <laughs> just, just all over. We're like wow. Okay, this is interesting. But I, I I never forget that. I'll never forget it. But we're gonna we're gonna look in the mirror tonight. Is that cool with you guys? And as, we, and as we look, and as you evaluate yourself, as we look at how David got evaluated, we're going to walk through what happened to David. You see, tonight, if you're not real with yourself, if you're not real with yourself now, then you'll always live a fake life. But if you're real with yourself before God, then He'll, he'll exalt you into a fulfilled life. But if you're not real with yourself now, you'll live a fake life in the future. So this takes us... To Second Samuel chapter eleven, and sure enough, we're looking at David and Bathsheba. And Second Samuel, if you haven't found it yet, start in Genesis and go right. You'll find it. Second <laughs> Samuel eleven. Here we go. It says, in the spring, in verse one, in the spring at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of his house. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite." Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanliness. Then she went back home, but the woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. And if this isn't terrible enough, we won't read the next section, but to, to summarize it. And for the rest of the chapter, what happens is... David tries to get Uriah, you know, Bathsheba's husband. He gets him to come back to, from war. And his goal was to get Uriah to go back to his home and sleep with Bathsheba. So it looked like it was Uriah's uh, uh, child and not David's. he tried to deceitfully try to hide it all. But Uriah wouldn't do that. He came back from war. We'll talk about one of those scriptures later. He came back from war. He wouldn't go to, you know, to his wife's house. Because he said, how can I do that when all my you know, fellow Israelites are out at war? And so, and so what David decides to do is to figure out how to get him killed. So he sends his own death note with Uriah to the commanding officer back at war. And he says, put Uriah on the front lines to where he will get killed. And sure enough, he got killed. And then down in, in the end of chapter 11, in verse 25, it said, David told the messenger, say this to uh, Joab. And, and it's that same idea about, you know, what I was just talking about. Verse 26. It says, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David... Had her brought to his house, and she became his wife, and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. How far the king has fallen. David fell so far in this chapter, and his sin went so deep. You know, it started with just, you know, he sent his commander and his army off the war. You, you guys see what he did in the beginning? It said he stayed back. It started with laziness. It started with complacency. And you know, I'm done fighting. I'll let other people do it. And he stayed back. And then, and then it goes on to say, you know, David got up from his bed at night. It must have been really late if he was already in his bed. He, he, was, he probably knew what he was looking for. And he goes out and he's on top of his palace and then he looks and then he sees Bathsheba. And he lusts after her. And he wants her. And there's a couple different views of this that are taught. One is maybe Bathsheba knew that, you know, David could see her. And she, and she went out hoping that the king would come. Maybe she's power hungry. But, the, but I don't think that's quite it. Because if you look right here, if you look right here in verse, in verse 4, it says, Then David sent messengers to get her. You know, that's a really nice translation, to get her. The Greek word there actually means to take her. And even in the ISV translation, it says, you know, the soldiers went and took her from her home. I think we need to be honest about what David did here. And I know it's a very sensitive topic for some of us that have gone through such tragedies like this. But this is rape. And David takes her. And in that culture, well, can Bathsheba have done anything? Well, in that culture, a woman can almost never say no to a man. Because that's just the, the, the ancient culture that they're in. Much less a man in authority. But if the man is the king himself, there is nothing he can tell you to do that you're allowed to refuse. If you refuse the king, then he can kill you. So she has to sleep with him. And David fell so far. But didn't stop there. He tried to cover it up into deceit and a lie. You know when you sin and you try to cover it up so no one can find out? And he tries to cover up and in his, in his deceit and his fear of coming to light led him to anger, led him to rage, led him to murder. It's just a terrible, terrible scene. And you might ask, man, this is a very interesting topic for the first night of the retreat.
1: <laughs>
0: but guys, the, the real reason David was a man after God's own heart was because he was a sinner like all of us. But the way that he responded to his sin. That's what makes him a man after God's own heart.
1: Because
0: we're all sinners here too, aren't we? And it's not about if you sin. It's when you sin and how you do it and what you do with it. And so what I want to do is I want to look in the mirror. David got a good, clear look at his sin right there. I want us to get a good, clear look at our sin. Can we do that? And so let's, let's flip over. We're going to go to Ephesians. And in, uh, in Ephesians... We're going to look at a few passages together, and I'm going to shoot through a few passages. And my goal, guys, is to not let us make any sin too small. There's other small things in life that we decide are not too small enough to, make, to be a big deal to me. Like bugs, right? You know when you find a bug in your house? It's very small, and yet you don't, you, you do whatever, like, like last week, I uh, there was a there was, I was sitting in my living room and this big cockroach is just climbing across the top of the wall. And it's one of those where I was like, oh, oh no. And so I, I go grab a shoe, I don't try to tell Toya Toy see Toya's brother Stephen was there. And and so I'm like, okay, here we go. Toya usually sees it and runs. And then she's like behind the door, kinda like, What's happening? You know? And then so Stephen and I, because we're mighty men of valor, you know, we go against this cockroach. And so I get in the chair, and he's like up there in the crack of the wall and the ceiling, right? And, and Steven's it, a big old dude. Steven, my brother, he's like 6'2", 220. And so he's behind me, i he's like, right, boy, get him, bro. You know what I mean? And so, and so I got my shoe, and so I, I slam it, but it's in that corner that's so hard to actually get. You know what I'm talking about? So I slam, and then he scuttles around. And then I lift up my shoe again, and he takes flight. So, and, and he literally... Last week, he literally goes straight into my face. It's, and, then, and, like, and then, and then, ah! then, and like terrible... and and then, and then, and ran and then, and it's and then, and then, and and then, he go? So, we just- for this thing, right, moving all the furniture, I mean, no matter what, up, I mean, get all the flashlights, like, just looking at everything, Man, and then we finally find him behind the blind, okay, you, you keep an eye on him, where's the spot, you know what I'm saying, and then and, then, and, we, and we, okay, we killed him, all right, thank God we killed him, we killed him, you're welcome, So you know listen, listen, this guy was small, I mean, he was, most cockroaches are like that, this guy might have been like that, you know what I'm saying, but, he was small. He was small. But nothing was going to stop us from getting that out of our house. Nothing was going to stop us. I think some of us need to get that same vigor and passion about our sins. That no matter how small my sin is, nothing's going to stop me from running out of my life. If we become too comfortable with these small sins. And they start to shape us, and we write them off, and we make excuses for them. And people start to say, oh, that's just him. Or, oh, that's just her. And these small sins start to become who we are. So we're going to look in the mirror. And we're going to say no sin is too small. And we're going to fight to have a a heart after God's own heart. Amen? Amen. So in Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 5. In, in Ephesians chapter 5, the first thing I want us to talk about is laziness. Laziness. Because that's what started David's downfall. You know, the truth is, sin won't kill most Christians. Complacency will. Complacency to say, I'm not going to grow anymore. I'm lazy. I'm, I'm fine staying right here. And David was fine sending his warriors off to battle and him staying in Jerusalem. Look at this look at this verse in, in uh, Ephesians 5 verse 15. It says, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Man, we have to be careful in the way that we live. In the way that we live, we need to give our all to God, right? Colossians 3.23, you can write it down. It says, work at everything you do, work at it with all of your hearts, as though you're serving the Lord instead of human masters. And we need to think about the way we live and we should go after all of our heart. And not just turning in into our homework or our tests into our professor, but be, to turning it into God. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. We, Christians should be the best teammates on a group project.
1: You
0: because you're giving it all your heart and you're being wise in the way you go about it. Christians should be the best employees. Yeah. Because you're going about it, you're not just working for your boss. Yeah. You're working at it, you're working for your God, your almighty father. Yeah. should be your best employees. No Christian should get fired. Because you should be a model employee at your job. You should get great grades. Now every great grade for each one of us is a little different, but you should give your whole heart yeah. to your grades. No Christian should be skipping class or sleeping in class. Because I hope you're not doing that to God. We waste so much time. We waste so much time on our video games and on Netflix. So many of you have accomplished so much on a video game, but I don't know if you've accomplished anything in life.
1: Uh, on, Netflix, on Netflix,
0: you know more about your favorite TV show than you know about God's Word. People know that you love that TV show but because you talk about it all the time, but you, they can barely tell you like God because you don't ever talk about it. How are you using your time? How are you using your time? We have to be wise in the way that we live. Let's talk about impurity because that complacency led David first to lust and then to immorality. Ephesians five, verse three, it says, "But among you there must not even be a hint of sexual morality, or of any kind of impurity or greed, because these are improper for God's holy people." Verse five: For all this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, greedy person. Such a person as an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Verse 3, there must not even be a hint of sexual morality. Not even a hint. How much is a hint? Anything that causes arousal, physically, emotionally, or mentally. Not even a hint. It's very easy for college students to get a hint of sexual morality. We have to be honest about this. We have to be clear where it says it's it's improper for God's holy people. If you want to be part of God's people, man, you can't be doing that. It's impure. Look down in verse in verse five. It says, No immoral, impure, greedy person has any inheritance from the kingdom of Christ or God. Because they're idolaters. They're putting something first before God. What does that mean? You're not going to heaven. And because Paul knows what the world says. And you think about our world now and the difference between how we treat biblically impurity versus how the world treats impurity. Because in the world, it's the exact opposite it says, Get as much as you can. Not a hint. What are you talking about? You should do everything including the hint. That it's made on on, on media, on movies, on everything else. It's, man, be impure. Be be full of lust. There's no love without lust. There's no relationships without lust. It's get as much as you can. And because Paul knows that, he says it again in verse verse 6. We'll let no one deceive you with empty words. Let me tell you, impurity will ruin your life. The world says impurity will bring you happiness. In reality, it is the biggest lie of Satan. And it will bring you the exact opposite. It will bring you despair. And we can't let people deceive us. And they're saying, well, at least you're not having sex. You know, at least you're keeping that for marriage. That's okay. Or I'm only looking at porn and masturbating. At least I'm doing something with somebody. At least I'm just masturbating and not looking at porn. There's all these lies from Satan in the world. Don't be deceived, crew. Don't be deceived. If impurity can knock David off, the man after God's own heart, how much more intently do we need to focus on impurity? Let's keep going. You know, selfishness, I'll just read this, 2 Samuel 11, 10 and 11. This is when Uriah came back. From the war. You know, Uriah is Bathsheba's husband. And David was trying to get him to sleep with, with Bathsheba to make it look like it was Uriah's son. You know, in verse 10, it says, David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, How do you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, Well, the Ark of the Covenant and Israel and Judah are, at, are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in open country for the war. How could I go to my house? To eat and drink and make love to my wife. As surely as you live, David, I will not do such a thing. And it's crazy, he says, as surely as David lives, when David's the one deceiving her. But what an incredible selflessness for Uriah. Instead of going, and, I paid my dues, I've gone to war, I must have done something heroic because the king himself called me back. Let me go into my comfort zone. Let me, let me give myself pleasure. That was righteous pleasure, to eat and drink and make love to his wife. That was very righteous to do. But he says, I'm not going to go into my, what I deserve for comfortability. Because how could I do that when there's a battle going on for my people? That I care. I, I'm so selfish. I don't think about me. I'm so focused on the, 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 my other brothers you know, of Israel that are out fighting. I can't be here not in the war and enjoy pleasure of their nights. I think some of us need to, get, need to learn from Uriah. Because, man, we love sharing our faith, and making disciples as a ministry. We love knowing that, hey, we're part of a ministry that advances God's kingdom. We don't shrink back. We love helping people know God. We love bringing out new friends and loving them and introducing them to Christ and teaching them how to follow Jesus. But I think some of us go, you know what? It's good enough for me to know my ministry does that. But I'm fine of eating and drinking by myself while you do that. Instead of fighting for selfless love to put yourself in uncomfortable places, to learn to push back past awkwardness, to learn to learn how to unconditionally, sacrificially love people that are trying to know God, you sit by yourself in your comfort zone, and your comfort zone of selfishness is ruining you, and it's keeping you out of the battle. We need every single person in here in the war for God's kingdom. You don't get, break out of your comfort zone of selfishness and fight for the souls that are going to be with you in heaven. Amen. Keep going. The next one is selfish ambition. You know, in, uh, in in Ephesians chapter four, in verse two, it says, "Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love." And you can write down Philippians two, verse three. It says, "Do nothing, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit." Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. He says, be completely humble in Ephesians 4. In Philippians 2, he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. It's not do a little out of selfish ambition. It's not do just sometimes out of selfish ambition or be almost humble in Ephesians 4. It's be completely humble. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceits. Man, selfish ambition. David, where he goes, my image is so important to me that I don't want people to know that I was immoral and got one of my soldiers' wives pregnant that I'm going to go through this elaborate plan to try to hide it. His image was so important to him. Some of us are so conceited. We spend so much time thinking about the way we look, the way we dress, and how other people perceive us. And you're more in awe with yourself than you are of God. So, social media enslaves so many of us in this generation. Think about how, how many hours you spend scrolling on social media compared to how many hours a day you spend flipping the Bible. We're enslaved to the way people think about us. We thrive off the new follow on Instagram, off the new like on Facebook. We want it. We seek it. It boosts our ego so much. Other people's interest and approval feeds us. And we're so desperate for us. Wanting to constantly be entertained. Do you care more about God's approval tonight or man's approval? Do you care more about God's kingdom or your own kingdom? You know, a lot of us, we want to reach success in this world. And success in this world is good in a lot of ways. I mean, there's nothing wrong with making a ton of money. There's nothing wrong with having a great job. There's nothing wrong with having a high status and a great house and all that kind of stuff. But if you make all that about your kingdom and lifting you up as king, then you're going to lose God's kingdom in eternity. Do not get lost and more focused on your own kingdom and your selfish ambition than God's kingdom. Amen? Amen. Let's do a couple more. We're looking in the mirror, guys. We're looking in the mirror. Ephesians 4. We'll continue in verse uh, in verse 3. So it says, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit to the bond of peace. Make every effort to keep unity. I think more of us are more focused on keeping making every effort to get our own opinions. Yeah. Than to make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit. And we get so focused on getting our way. And our emotions split up some of the closest friendships and the closest relationships. When the very next day, your emotions are different. Have you noticed your feelings change? And yet our feelings make us completely disunite with one another. And then the next day we wonder why we're disunited. In God's church, what splits the world should bring the people together. In God's church, there's no place for racial disunity. In God's church, there is no place for economic disunity. In God's church, there's no place for political or age or whatever it is. We have to fight to be united. To let love reign. Instead of let this disunity prosper. This unity. I mean, David was willing to split from his own soldier, from his own army, just to get his way. Down at the bottom of Ephesians 4. On, in verse 26. We can talk about anger. It says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry and give Satan a foothold. There's going to be a ton of things that make us angry. You know, the truth is, some of you might be angry with me right now. But that's okay. It's, it's hard to get our sin out there. It's hard to be called out. We're going to read that from David in a second how it was hard for him. But even though there's a lot of things that can make us angry, we need to not let it control us. It says when you, don't, you know, when you don't let the sun go down on your anger, when you let it fester, it controls you. And Satan gets a foothold. And all Satan needs is a foothold to ruin you. Don't let anger get a foothold in your life. And the last one is in Ephesians 4, verse 29. Ephesians 4, 29, talking about unwholesome talk. Guys, we need to be real with ourselves about how much we let unwholesome talk fester in this group. Where we write off what is really gossip, and we make it seem like it isn't gossip. Where we explain to each other, we put each other down, we make fun of each other, but we say, hey, it's not that big of a deal because we're all Christians and we're friends. Yeah. Yeah. Do not let any un- If you don't have something good to say, don't say it. Yeah. It says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. That's a scary thought. Yeah. That your language grieve the spirit of God. Do not do that to God's spirit. And then it says, get rid of all bitterness. There's no way, okay, you cannot let bitterness have a foothold. You can't let bitterness cling in your life. If Jesus was willing to get rid and not to hold on to and cling on to what you did to him, you have no right to hold on to what other people do to you. You gotta let it go, guys. You gotta let it go. And guys, through all this, I get it. I'm such a sinful man. I mean, when I was sitting here as a junior at Georgia Tech, my my impurity was ravaging my life. And it was tearing me apart. The way that I was judgmental of other people, and that I did whatever I could to lift myself up, I made fun of people constantly, I cursed them out, so I lift myself up. I was constantly angry because I was so insecure. That anyone could twinge me and set me off. I remember remember coming to things like this. And I was the one, I I, I grew up in church being hungover from the night before. I grew up in church smoking before I went. Like I was, but even in my lowest of lows, I was never willing to admit who I really was. And I was unwilling to be vulnerable and to open up my heart. Out of fear, out of fear of what would happen to me if I let people in. Out of fear of what would, how would other people perceive me? How would they disown me? How would they not be my friends anymore? How would they judge me if I really let them know who I really was? So I kept on putting up this image, and that's what we see David do. We're going to look over back in uh, back in uh, Second Samuel chapter twelve. We're going to look at how David did this, and we're going to close out here. You guys, still with me.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> in Second Samuel chapter twelve we're going to read this chunk together, talk about one more verse, and we're going to be done. So all this happened to David, and he knew he was a sinner, but he didn't want other people to know it. So let's see how it goes down with the prophet, this preaching man, came to him, the prophet Nathan, in chapter 12, and verse 1, it says, the Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cow, but the poor man only had one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it and grew it up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank uh, his cup, and slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Seems a lot more human than it does a lamb. Nathan's actually talking about Bathsheba. Verse 4. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man, and he prepared it for the one who had come to him. So David, so this rich man went and he, even though he had all these sheep, he went to this poor man and only had one sheep, took it from him, and then brought it over for, for himself to give to his traveler a friend. And verse 5: David burned with anger against the man, and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, This man who did this must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Check what Nathan said to him. Verse 7. Then Nathan said to David, You are that man. man. Explanation point. (laughs) This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I am going to do king over Israel, and and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house to you, your master's wives, and your arms. I gave you all. Israel and Judah, and if all that had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despise me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. In verse 13, it says, Then David said to Nathan, check this out, I have sinned against the Lord. He finally humbles out. He finally looks in the mirror to see who he really is. He finally notices and confesses and opens up about what had happened. I wonder, it had been nine months. Remember, you know, he had gone to... You know, Uriah had died and he had brought Bathsheba to be his wife. And then they had conceived the son. It takes nine months, last time I checked. It had been months and months and months without him going to Nathan. I wonder what would have happened if he would have opened up immediately. Of before, before he killed Uriah, if he went to Nathan it went, Nathan, you've helped me so much to this point as a man of God in my life. Can you help me? I don't know why I did this, but I sinned terribly last night. I don't know what to do with Uriah and I don't know what to do with Israel. What are they going to think of me? Or, or maybe even if after everything, after the murder, even after it got worse and he claimed uh, Bathsheba as his own, what if he would have gone to Nathan then? Nathan, I, 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 I've done things I never said I would do. And, and I not only was blessed, I was immoral, and then I killed one of my own men. Help me. I'm a sinner. Help me. Can you pray for me to the Lord? Can you give me guidance? Can you help me? I wonder if this would have looked different. But instead, what ends up happening is David loses his own son as a consequence of his sin. I don't want to end tonight with us just destroying ourselves, okay? There's something we can do about it. There's something God, even more importantly, does about it that we're going to talk about through the weekend. But I want to read you guys one more verse. And if there was a last point that was only three minutes long, then it, was going to, it would be called Spotlight. Spotlight. And what we're going to do tonight is we're going to have a time of confession. And we're going to have a time to be like David to Nathan and say, I have sinned. And to be able to talk with one another and be vulnerable and to open up with one another so that we can come into the light and be humble and soft hearts to let God mold us to the weekend. You can just write this down. John 3, 19 says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds are evil. And here's the kicker I want us to listen to. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. Isn't it scary to be open? Isn't it scary to be vulnerable? That we have a fear of our deeds being exposed. But if we're going to have soft hearts this weekend... If we're going to be honest and look in the mirror about where we're really at, so that we can humble ourselves so God can exalt us, we've got to shine a bright spotlight on our sin. And to be willing to come into the light. Because what it says is, but whoever lives by the truth comes into the light. So it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. If you want to leave this retreat in the light, if you want to leave this retreat just empowered by God's Spirit and by the light, then you've got to be vulnerable. And you've got to be open with your sin. And you've got to be willing to go there and let down the walls to stop playing the Christian game of just comparing. It's all about the image. And decide, I'm going to be real and authentic and honest about where I'm really at so that God can help me. Because if we're humble this weekend, it doesn't matter where you're coming from. God can take you to where you need to be.
1: Amen?